the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, we bring you the recording of a recent book launch of Playing the Game, the memoirs of Sir Julius Chan. Speakers included Sir Chan, His Excellency Mr Charles Lapani, and Mr Bill Farmer. All right, well, uh, welcome everyone uh, to uh, this very uh, special event uh, that we're honoured uh, to be hosting tonight. Uh, my name's Stephen Howes, and I am the Director of the Development Policy Centre uh, here at the Crawford School of Public Policy, and we are privileged to be your hosts for tonight. And uh, before we uh, go any further, let us begin by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians, uh, the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting, and uh, let us pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, as well as having a large number of people here tonight, which is great. We also have a number of very distinguished guests, and I'm sure I'm not going to be able to welcome all of our distinguished guests. Uh, but of course, first of all, I'd like to welcome Sir Julius Chan, uh, guest of honour for tonight, whose autobiography uh, we're launching. Uh, and not only is uh, Sir Julius here, but also uh, his family. Uh, so welcome to you all. And uh, I don't want to single out anyone in your family, but I think I should mention uh, Byron Chan, Minister for Mining, who's here uh, as well. Um, we have uh, uh, our, our speakers I'll introduce uh, shortly, um, but I, I would like uh, to, before I do that, just mention a few other distinguished guests. Uh, Ian Kemish, former High Commissioner of Australia to Papua New Guinea, uh, is here. Uh, we have Bob McMullen, uh, former uh, Minister and uh, Parliamentary Secretary for Aid, uh, is here. Um, we, I'm not sure if the, ambas- the Algerian ambassador has arrived, but yeah. he, yes, welcome sir, thank you very much uh, for coming. Uh, Warren Dutton, uh, former Member of Parliament from uh, PNG, is also here. Um, I'll uh, mention Lucy Palmer is here. Uh, you'll hear about Lucy's important contribution to the project uh, during the evening. And uh, I'd also <coughs> like to acknowledge Cathy Valance, who's... Uh, from uh, Queensland University Press, the publisher for this uh, volume. Uh, And apologies to anyone else who I should have uh, mentioned. Uh, Thank you all for coming. Uh, It's often said, you know, there's not enough, it's often complained, right, there's not enough interest in PNG in Australia, but we had the launch of Sean Dorney's book uh, recently in uh, the Press Club and uh, for Lowy, and Lowy said it was the most number of people they'd ever had to one of their book launches. And I think by that and by the event tonight, you know, we are, there is really a lot of interest in uh, PNG uh, here in Australia, and that's great to see. Uh, so the order of events uh, for tonight, um, we have a, a number of uh, uh, speakers, and so let me introduce, turn to introduce them now. Uh, we'll hear first from His Excellency Mr. Charles Dupani, who's the uh, uh, High Commissioner, who's Papua New Guinea's High Commissioner uh, here in Australia. Uh, has been for some time and also has the uh, distinguished position of being the leader of the diplomatic corps here in Canberra. And, uh, of course, before being High Commissioner, uh, Charles had a very uh, eminent role in the public service in, uh, back in PNG uh, in those formative uh, post-independence years. So we're delighted to have you here, Charles. Thank you very much for coming. And then uh, we'll also hear from uh, Bill Farmer. Uh, Bill is uh, for a very senior uh, civil servant, was uh, Secretary of Immigration, has been our uh, ambassador to Indonesia, uh, but most importantly for tonight's uh, purposes, he was former High Commissioner uh, to Papua New Guinea. So we're very much looking forward to what you have to say. Uh, after hearing from uh, these two, we'll turn it over to uh, Sir Julius uh, to hear from him. And uh, after that, we have a celebration with a cultural performance that will be, will fit them in somewhere. Um, I think we weren't quite sure how this uh, night was going to go down, so we may not use this uh, these props. Um, we'll see how we we'll see how we go. Um, but that's the uh, that's the running order for tonight. Uh, so without uh, further ado, I'd like to call on uh, Charles Dupani. To say a few words. Please welcome. Thank you, Stephen. Um, 
thank you for hosting um, this uh, very important occasion for Papua New Guinea and its history and politics uh, to honor uh, statesman and a leader of, of our country. I also want to, um, uh, I think you can all hear me uh, put this away. I also wish to um, honor and pay my respects to Ngunnawal people, the traditional and customary uh, uh, landowners on this land on which we meet, and pay respects to the, the elders past and present as we pay respect and honor our TNG statesman and elder, Sir Julius Chan. Grand Chief, Right Honorable Sir Julius Chan, Later, uh, Lady Stella Chan, Honorable Warren Dutton, former minister in various uh, capacities and portfolios of Papua New Guinea governments, uh, Mark Chan, and also your brother, uh, Byron Chan, the Honorable Minister for Mines, <coughs> and um, my colleagues, uh, former and present former, sorry, Australian High Commissioners, and also Stephen House, as I said, thank you very much, and Lucy Palm for your contribution to this wonderful um, uh, uh, piece of work for Papua New Guinea. I'm honored and privileged to be asked uh, to say a few words at the launch of this book, <coughs> Playing the Game. I did read the book last weekend, long weekend, and um, as a participant in, the, in that period of time discussed by Sir Julius, I must say it brought all that sentiment of euphoria, uh, exuberance, and, uh, uh, and all that went with a unique period of Papua New Guinea's history uh, at independence. So um, the book that Sir Julius has uh, provided us uh, gives a perspective, several perspectives that I think for me uh, responded to it with such, such um, I felt like you're telling all of our history at that time, Sir Julius. Um, it was exciting. Uh, also the, described what we believed was the future of our country at the time. Some of the key things that I can reminisce on that, please read the book, uh, that Sir Julius has highlighted. Policy exchanges, whether we agreed or not, between the bureaucrats and our leaders, our politicians, at cabinet level, never ended up being sackings for public servants. That is something that we miss today, to the detriment of the capacity of public service to deliver. And it is people like leaders like Sir Julius, Michael Samari, at that time, that allowed for this unique experience to emerge in Papua New Guinea history. They were not regarded as personal uh, issues. They were, we all understood, we were disagreeing or agreeing on behalf of Papua New Guinea. One of the examples that Sir Julius quoted, Shavramo Sugar, me and my colleague then, David Beatty, we objected strongly against Ramo Sugar for local production of sugar. Unbeknownst to me, as I read the book, Sir Julius went to uh, colonial refinery people and said, how is it going to affect you? How is it going to affect your relationship? That is unique. And when it came back, of course, 
it went ahead the project where we used the classic example of argument of infant industries they never grow up and um, while Sir Julius said we're going to, we, we can produce sugar and, and um, at, uh, at cabinet level we said it'll cost us it cost the consumers which it did at the beginning uh, sugar went from 60 toya to to $1.20 a kilo to employ 200 people. Now, that, that was a genuine disagreement, policy disagreement. And Sir Julius related this exceptionally well. Thank you. But uh, he mentioned me there as part of the bureaucrats that disagreed. <laughs> so that's why I, I said it. That, but it didn't result with him sacking me. <laughs> like they do these days. Um, but and then when I look back on uh, Sir Julius as, as a leader and, and I read his book and his, um, his uh, thoughts sorry I have 10 minutes I'll, I'll, I'll close very shortly uh, um, racism something that he discussed and sure enough for colonial Times moving into, he was the, one of the first distinguished public servants of color. You know? uh, not only bearing color, but he was also seen as a mixed race, which means from the other side, he was being vilified also. But the strength of the man, the leader that we have, he put that aside, moved on, and carried on his leadership role throughout the history of this country. Still, he still is a governor of New Island province. So that is something that in his book you have to read and understand that background and, and it's an important contributing factor. The background is high school in, Quint in Australia, Queensland. Some of us shared that history. We went there for boarding school at uh, high school and, and, and his, uh, he alluded to, to that experience as contributing to what he is today, and in, in his, particularly on his football field. And in fact, most of us, if I may say so, that we, we did play sports very well. <laughs> and um, and um, racism in Queensland, if you call it deep, deep north in Australia, I never experienced that. And I'm sure Sir Julius did, because we were good sports people. Australians respect sport. <laughs> we were invited, I was invited to the farm. So, so Julius, thank you for that uh, experience, uh, sharing it with, with all of us. So um, the last, but most importantly for, for <coughs> or second last bit, if I may, the, the regional impact of Sir Julius's initiatives. Ramsey today was his peacekeeping concept uh, that he... That he um, uh, canvassed during the Pacific Islands Forum uh, meetings and eventually uh, contributed to just um, Papua New Guinea. In fact, from the experience of Vanuatu um, um, uh, expeditionary force that we sent, uh, the, the, the uh, regional peacekeeping force uh, came to being and continued for, uh, for Solomons in Bougainville. The concept was there, and it was at the Sir Julius's initiative, and I urge you to read that part of it. Last but not the least, it's Australia-PNG relations. Uh, it was at that time when they can pick up the phone, he can pick up the phone, call Philip Lynch, call uh, um, Andrew Peacock. In fact, in the book, he was sharing a very intimate moment <laughs> a very in, important in, intimate moment when him and Andrew Peacock, extreme ends of a bathroom, discussing how much money we needed for independence when <laughs> Fraser, Fraser came to power. And that, that is the unique experience at that time that our leaders shared. Pick up a phone, talk to each other, wherever it may be. Uh, and and, um, and that... that I'm afraid has disappeared. There are efforts today, resurgent 
efforts to reconnect young leaders of Papua New Guinea and young leaders of Australia. But uh, Sir Julius, may I thank you again, uh, Grand Chief, for this effort you put in for the sake of our country. I'm reminding regular of young Papua New Guineans that history didn't start with you when you were born. <laughs> Build on the history that leaders, our leaders built, then PNG would be a better place for the future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Charles, for those uh, reflections. And it certainly is a very, uh, it's a very good read. I had an advanced copy which I enjoyed down at the beach over Christmas. Um, there are books available here. I'm sure Sir Julius, we have to drag him away from the book signing for this launch, but uh, I'm sure he'll make himself available afterwards. Please uh, do respect those people who are at the front of the queue, because they have been waiting some time and to, uh, to take them away. Uh, I'd now like to call on uh, Australia's former High Commissioner of Papua New Guinea, Bill Farmer, to say a few words. Please welcome Thanks very much, Stephen. Uh, well, uh, good evening, everyone. And Sir Julius, uh, thank you for your book. I've, I've read it with uh, fascination, uh, respect, not always with total agreement, I'd say, but uh, <laughs> that's nothing new between Australians and Papua New Guineans, and I think it's one of the good things about, uh, about uh, our, our long uh, relationship. Now, look, in Australia, in, in recent years, indeed in recent months, we've had uh, uh, a mini flood of uh, political memoirs, and some of them uh, are really are telling us what the butler saw. Uh, some of them uh, verge on science fiction. Uh, some, some of them are you know, pretty, uh, pretty good. But the, the field is very much thinner in the, in the case of, uh, of Papua New Guinea. And I think, Sir Julius, that your book is important for that reason among uh, many, uh, many others. To read something of that first 50 years uh, of, uh, following self-government through, uh, through independence... Uh, Papua New Guinea's path uh, to independence, since independence, uh, all of that through your eyes, uh, to me, has been uh, a real privilege uh, to, to gain some uh, insight into your own personal feelings uh, throughout that pro process. Uh, I think that's something that, that all of us here uh, will be really the better for, uh, for appreciating. You say quite rightly that you didn't inherit a system, you inherited elements of, uh, of a system, Rather, you say, you helped construct a country. And your account of those first tentative years uh, of construction, sometimes tempestuous years, uh, which followed, that's a major offering to anyone with, uh, with an interest in, uh, in Papua New Guinea. Thank you especially for your evocation of the hopes which uh, flourished amidst all those heady and uh, daunting days uh, following independence. Hopes, I think, shared by many Australians as well as uh, all Papua New Guineans. Uh, as you put it, uh, there was there a mentality committed to the cause of self-government and independence, everything that would lead to prosperity, building a better life, uh, and a more satisfying life for, uh, for your people. And more somberly, I think, your admission towards the end of the, uh, the book of uh, your being now a little bit uncertain uh, about the country's future. And that uncertainty, again speaking as a friend, seems apt when we consider the way in which the, the early hopes for, uh, for better circumstances, better health, uh, better education uh, have uh, perhaps not been lived up to in the way that was envisaged those 40 years uh, ago. When we see the elements of, uh, of the, the economy which have fallen away because of, of reliance on the minerals uh, sector, when we survey the, the pernicious effects of corruption, uh, domestic violence, crime, and, as uh, the High Commissioner uh, intimated, the erosion of some of the institutions of the, uh, the state. You've certainly given us a very serious basis for thinking about uh, those, uh, those issues. Uh, I was particularly struck by the, the evident weight on your mind imposed by the, uh, the, the Bougainville uh, issue and the fact that that weight still seems uh, to be there. Now, that's understandable, given that in one way or another, or another it was central to the ending of your, uh, your prime ministership, and uh, that, that it must have been a very painful thing to, uh, to write about. It's certainly very uh, illuminating to, uh, to read about. 
There are some elements in that whole saga which are still not uh, uh, clear to me, and in some respects, it seems, uh, to you, Sir, uh, Sir Julius. Primarily, of course, the swirl of events, motives and actions uh, around the, the Sandline affair, uh, on which we have a few counts, including now yours, uh, and, of course, uh, Mary Louise O'Callaghan's book of some, uh, some years ago. Uh, but from my own personal experience, uh, based uh, on, uh, on my time as High Commissioner in Papua New Guinea in 93 to 95, and then subsequently back in Canberra, there are a few things that I would like to, uh, to, to add. The first is uh, my regard for the leadership that you demonstrated uh, on the issue of uh, uh, Bougainville. You demonstrated that you wanted to push for something to be done to end the suffering of the people of Bougainville. I remember very clearly your evident determination uh, there. As you put it in your book, uh, you were not the sort of person to take the chair and not resolve the, uh, the main issue. And I think particularly that following the visit of a, an Australian parliamentary delegation to, uh, to Bougainville, you approved uh, the, uh, the, uh, the dispatch of a South Pacific peacekeeping force to facilitate peace talks in, uh, in Bougainville, uh, you then oversaw that process that led to, uh, to peace talks, regrettably not successful, uh, in Cairns. So I think that, that's my first impression, your determination to do something about Bougainville. The, the second uh, comment, it's, it's, and it's really a much unhappier set of events, and that is the, the Sandline uh, uh, affair, and in particular your discussion in the book of uh, the Australian government's attitude you, you note that you thought uh, that there was no good reason for uh, the Australian uh, view, no good reason for Australia to object to, uh, to that deal. Uh, and you're, you're very clear about uh, the discussions you had and the, the fact that you, you didn't get uh, a clear statement. That, if I may say so again as a friend, that's not our perspective. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, now, of course, <laughs> uh, the, the, the Australian view, as I recall, <laughs> as, as it was explained to me at the time, <laughs> was that it was a, a highly undesirable development to, uh, to, to have uh, foreign mercenaries uh, in our region, having uh, an African uh, phenomenon uh, brought into the, uh, the South Pacific uh, seemed inherently uh, undesirable, uh, and moreover, given the background of the people, uh, uh, quite likely to uh, to lead to uh, really uh, further depredations against the the, uh, the people of uh, Bougainville. And uh, from our perspective, we thought that that uh, would have uh, uh, been very negative. Well, uh, so do, so do I guess uh, you know best uh, best friends, good friends do have the capacity to, uh, to, to differ. What we don't seem to, to differ on, I must say, uh, is the, the, the thoughts that emerge in your book also about uh, the, the subsequent serious threat to democracy in Papua New Guinea, uh, which you describe very vividly, and the very deleterious effects that that whole episode uh, had in the shape of concerns about bribery and, uh, and corruption. And some of that, I agree, is still really very, uh, very murky. Uh, another comment, uh, I'd, I'd like to say something about relations between our uh, two, uh, two countries. You offer us clearly very mixed feelings. Uh, regard for uh, many individual Australians, particularly, I think, uh, Australians who were working <laughs> with you before and after uh, independence. Uh, you you uh, uh, talk about your own development as a, a member of the public service and the people of the Australians you worked with uh, there. Uh, you also, of course, very strident and forthright. I never knew you to be anything else about things like boomerang aid, Australian indifference, Australian uh, high-handedness, uh, and that all of those things, I guess, are part of the, uh, the mix. But 40 years on from independence, I, I think we're still all working at that mix. Uh, and I think it's, it's uh, important to, uh, to say uh, here that, that that mix still contains, from the Australian side, enormous elements of, uh, of goodwill, contains enormous uh, elements of, 
of substance in our dealings on development aid, on police and public service and uh, defence uh, cooperation, uh, volunteer uh, work, uh, the Kokoda Initiative. There are many ways in which Australians and uh, Papua New Guineans are still doing things uh, together. Uh, and still, I think, retaining our right to have a go at each other when we don't agree with, with things. And I think that's, that's, that was always, for me, a really terrific element of living and working uh, in Papua New Guinea. And I wonder, this is very naughty, I wonder whether it sometimes uh, uh, has given you private amusement over this last year or two to see the way in which the current Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea uh, has used the leverage he has over Manus uh, to occasionally twist the kangaroo's tail. Uh, <laughs> well, Sir Julius, I, I really do count it uh, an honour to, to thank you for your, for your memoirs. Uh, they bring back to, to me memories of the, the Prime Minister that you were. Uh, your decisiveness, certainly your capacity to cut through and your determination to, to cut through. Uh, your plain speaking, my ears sometimes burn still at thinking of some of the things. Uh, uh, your readiness to engage uh, uh, frankly and your readiness to listen too. That was, uh, I think, a, a wonderful thing for a diplomat uh, to receive at the hands of a senior political uh, leader. Uh, if I may say so, you've lived up to and continue to live up to your mother's in, uh, injunction. You must go now, you've got walk. You, uh, you've, got, uh, you've got to go now. You've got things to do. Uh, and finally, may I thank you for one of my most treasured me uh, mementos from, from Papua New Guinea. Um, it's it's a, a photograph from the Post Courier, it was during Paul Keating's visit uh, in, uh, in 1995, uh, and these two gentlemen with dark hair are actually Sir Julius and me. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, Paul Keating's there, and uh, I know this is not a happy snaps time, but for me, I love this because of the, the Post Courier's little uh, 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 byline underneath, and it says, hello and welcome, Australian High Commissioner Bill Farmer Greet Sir Julius Chan, comma, with Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating, a bystander. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Bill, and it's great to be able to continue the conversation. Uh, before I call on uh, Sir Julius, I, I should have mentioned at the start, actually, there's one more item on our agenda. We had uh, initially invited Ross Garneau to uh, speak. Uh, you, I'm sure many of you know of uh, Ross. He was a famous Australian economist, formerly uh, advisor to uh, Bob Hawke, and uh, before that, economic advisor to Sir Julius. Uh, Ross accepted, but then unfortunately uh, had to have an operation on his knee, so he's unable to... Uh, to be with us. But he uh, did send uh, a message which he's asked me to read out. So if you just bear with me, I'll, it's a very brief uh, message. And before, on that note, uh, Professor Peter Drysdale also sends his best. We have many uh, you know, supporters here at the uh, ANU. Uh, Ross says, I regret that temporarily diminished mobility prevents me from joining you this evening. <laughs> that sounds like Ross. Julius Chan is a great figure in the history of modern Papua New Guinea. His achievements as the first finance minister. I go well beyond those mentioned in the book. Julius led the introduction of the whole system of public finance and monetary management and policy for independent Papua New Guinea. This gave PNG development a stable foundation for more than a decade and a half after self-government. Julius and the government of which he was part and the public officials who served them showed that the newly independent democracy of PNG could take consistent and hard decisions in the public interest, in the national interest, explain them to the people and make them work. It was my pleasure and honour to work closely with Julius and his Secretary for Finance, McCary Marauta, in those formative years. This splendid book illuminates the person in ways that autobiographies often fail to do. It brings alive the people through whom this young man of mixed Papua New Guinean and Chinese descent discovered his identity as a Papua New Guinean in the fading days of Australian colonialism. I myself relived many poignant moments as I read the book. I thought I knew a lot about Julius, but I learnt a lot more. Nothing more precious than the complex story of how Julius emerged from his early years between two cultures as a proud man of his country, determined that PNG should make the most of its chances. Less known than Julius's national role is his commitment in recent years to making the most of development in his home province, New Ireland. 
One Saturday morning, seven or eight years ago, Julius invited me to talk to the public servants of the province about development. The meeting was scheduled for 8am on a Saturday. The lecture theatre at the Fisheries College was full for the start of the meeting, with neatly dressed teachers and accountants and aid post orderlies and other officials. A major achievement of development leadership in itself. <laughs> the latter parts of the book express unhappiness about the corruption and institutional weakness of contemporary Papua New Guinea. Many of us share those concerns. Julius' reflections in this book show that it doesn't have to be that way, that it is possible for a government in democratic Papua New Guinea to govern in the public interest. Uh, so that's from Roscano. Uh, but now I'd like to call on our guest of honour, Sir Julius Chan, to please come up and say a few words. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for the arrangement. It's magnificent. Uh, I can see very few politicians among you. And, uh, do I need the microphone? Yes. I'm a bit, I'm a bit di a dictator. <laughs> Is it on? Yes. yes. It's totally close. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to respond very quickly to Ross Gowan. Tell him that I have also got a reconstructed knee. <laughs> Only about six months ago, and I'm walking. Very strongly now. But um, also, because he's not going to be here, and I may not have a chance to talk about him, you know, one of the most frightening <coughs> moments of me as finance minister, and Dr. Yi would know about that, I was presenting Papua New Guinea to the International Monetary Fund and the, the, uh, the World Bank um, around 19... Uh, 76, straight after independence, to become member of those two international organizations. And I was there without any speech ready for me. Uh, and I think I might have caused Dr. Roscano's knees. Uh, <laughs> he was typing that speech at the back of, uh, it was the Festival of Arts, I think, uh, thing in... Uh, Menu, and my name was called. Don't worry, Stephen. My knee is okay. <laughs> uh, my name was called, and here the Minister for Finance of Papua New Guinea, and I don't have the thing. I don't have anything in front of me, and here come Ross Gano <laughs> running, and I don't want him to claim me for the damage. <laughs> uh, they ran with the speech, and it was a good, just like a baton being passed on to me. And I went straight to the podium and then read out my speech, and they thought that was a colorful presentation of Papua <laughs> For the first time, becoming a member of the, uh, the World Bank and the IMF. <clears throat> Look, High Commissioner <clears throat> and um, High Commissioner Charles Lepani and Mrs. Lepani. Uh, Mr. Bill Farmer, also former High Commissioner. Uh, Mr. McCullen, I've had some contact with you and you've been very kind to me at that time. Thank you. Of course, next to you is Flood. He's always flooded Papua New Guinea with a lot of international affairs. He's <laughs> uh, a man of very straight talk, much straighter than what my book is all about. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, I want to acknowledge uh, my old friend here, <clears throat> Warren Dutton, who was uh, Minister for Justice because he never fully got a degree in law. <laughs> so he cannot be an Attorney General, but he was the Minister for Justice, and Minister for Police, and he nearly led a constitutional uh, problem for me at that time. And, we won. <clears throat> uh, my brother, uh, Byron Chan, <clears throat> he's bigger than me. Uh, he's here as the Minister for Mining. Um, um, and uh, you very distinguished guests, all my friends, Australian friends, my advisors, 
Ladies and gentlemen, firstly, thank you for coming. You know, it's been some years. You, both you, High Commissioners, have already outlined my book, so I'll just go away from it a little bit. It's been some years since I last visited this purpose-built city, the foundation stone of democracy in Australia. 38 days short of 35 years ago, April 24, 1981, it was my privilege to open the Papua New Guinea High Commission office in Canberra. I said then, in a traditional Papua New Guinea society, the beat of the Kundu drum, Mr. Kamish will know what I'm talking about, because you hear a lot of it, has been the means of summoning leaders to Kiwon or meeting ground. <clears throat> I remember clearly Andrew Peacock and I sounded the drums, call on many leaders from other countries to the opening, jointly participated by the then Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser and myself. It is momentous to be back this evening in this hall, named after my personal economic mentor and friend, Sir John Crawford, a close friend of Papua New Guinea, and I therefore feel somewhat spurred by the spirit of that great Australian, giving me confidence to outpour years of my exciting experience taking Papua New Guinea from a colony to self-government and independence. In many ways, many of you have been part of the making of the independent state of Papua New Guinea, and I'm heartened by your presence this evening. I often wonder what my life would have been like had I been born in 1880, or 1900, or even 1920, instead of at the beginning of the Second World War. There are times when the weight of history, the force of habit, is so powerful, it crushes any thought of change. Most of history is like this. The Dark Ages lasted 600 years, the age of colonialism, 300 years, when colonialism was simply accepted as the way of the world worked. There was no room for change, no room even for thought about change. Yet even the longest period of stagnation must end. Though often inexplicable, there are times when change is simply in the air. The Dark Ages gave way to Renaissance. Colonialism gave way to the age of self-determination. <clears throat> I was fortunate to be born in a time of change. I was born just as World War II broke out. And that war set in motion a series of changes that would transform the world by the time I was a young man, the winds of change were blowing across the colonial landscape of the world, beginning in Africa and spreading to Asia and finally the Pacific. So much of, my, of what my life has become is the result of being born in the right place at the right time. But the reality is that there were hundreds of thousands in the territories of Papua New Guinea in the 1960s and 1970s who felt those winds of change. Many were called, but few were chosen. I have always wondered, why me? Why was I chosen to play a central role in the birth of a nation, in the growth and maturation of Papua New Guinea? In collaboration with 
my right hand, and editor Lucy Palmer, sitting here with a beautiful white dress, <laughs> watching every word I say. <laughs> I have written an account of my life and the development of my country over the last 70 years. It is a deeply personal account, and I've been more candid in this memoir than at any other time in my public life. Of course, you know what politicians talk and how they talk. <laughs> Papua New Guinea is a culture where oral history still dominates. There are still relatively few books written by our people. To have a former Prime Minister produce a memoir of this kind is unique, like our High Commissioner said. Indeed, I believe mine may be the first political memoir that looks back and tries to give an account of our country's modern history, at least from my perspective. In doing so, I've created something and I never thought possible. A permanent record for generations of Papua New Guineans to come. Just as Australians can read the documents surrounding Federation in 1902, our people now have an account of their history written by someone who was there and when they actually experienced it. Me. The late American Senator Robert Kennedy once said, like it or not, we live in interesting times. There are times of danger and uncertainty, but they are also more open to the creative energy of man than any other time in history." Unquote. The period surrounding Papua New Guinea's journey to independence from Australia in 1975 was such a time. I said earlier, Many of you here will remember it well. <clears throat> we witnessed the birth of a new nation and experienced what still remains as one of the smoothest transitions to democracy in modern times. <clears throat> so with you, our Australians, you should feel very proud. As I am a Papua New Guinean, it is one of those smoothest transitions to democracy in modern times. <clears throat> it has been more than 40 years since the flag of our Australian colonizers was lowered for the last time, and I've been privileged to serve as Prime Minister for two terms in that period, Grand Chief Samari four times, and Pius Winty twice. Now, this is rare in any country, including yours. <laughs> As a sovereign nation, I think we have achieved a great deal since then. There is much for us to be proud of. However, everyone here tonight knows that Papua New Guinea faces unique and urgent challenges. There is still so much to be done tonight or this evening. I would like to be to briefly share some reflections from my memoirs, in particular those that focus on the relationship between Australia and Papua New Guinea. I was born in the island of Tanga of the east coast of New Ireland just before the Second World War. My mother, Miriam Tinkoris, was a Papua New Guinean. And my father, Chin Pak, a Chinese migrant from Guangdong province. I was the fifth born of their children. <clears throat> Our family life was completely transformed by the advent of the war. The Japanese were suspicious of my family and forced us all into a labor camp and tortured my uncle. I was much too young to remember, of course, 
but I do recall our eventual arrival in Rabaul on a barge under the command of an Australian soldier called Robinson. He was the very first Australian I ever met. And having read Robinson Crusoe, he was the champion. <laughs> well, that's why I'm still alive. I grew up in a large and striving extended family in Rabaul. We lived with my father's brother, a shipping captain, Chin Hem. He and my father ran a modest shipping cargo carrier, transporting goods around the islands of East New Britain and New Ireland. My first significant experience of the Australian way of life came when I was 14. Along with my cousin Joe Chen, whose age I cannot really tell, much older than me, but we were both in grade A. <laughs> I was sent to, to board at Murray's Brothers Ashgrove in Brisbane. We came to a strange land, not knowing anybody. Our Australian schoolmates knew we did not belong. So, they looked after us and treated us like kings. I could not have found a better place to grow up. They were probably the best years of my life. It was here that I discovered the importance of mateship and made many lifelong friends. Even though I found schoolwork difficult, <clears throat> I was much older than all my peers at the same class. Luckily, I was very good at sport particularly the rugby, where I represented the first 15 for three consecutive years. Don't think I can do that again, don't <laughs> They don't play with brains now, they play with muscles. <laughs> Astro produced a lot of footballers, like Des Conan, and later John Eels, and many other champions in cricket. After a year at St. Lucia campus of Queensland University, I had an accident riding a motorbike on a rainy day with my wheels locked into the tram line in Brisbane and was hospitalized for several months. I was forced to abandon my studies and return to Rabaul. That was 57 years ago. And you can see I'm still very young. <laughs> And it seems more than mere coincidence that Teddy Valence, University of Queensland Press, is present here this evening. The only way to get business experience at the time was through the cooperative movement. So I, I applied for a position in a public service based in Port Mosby. We used to work and on time in those days. <laughs> they don't do that anymore. They have to I think when they saw the name Chen, that they assumed I was a pure Chinese and let me in. As soon as I arrived in Port Mosby, I began to feel the impact of discrimination. I was kicked out of the four-mile donga after one night and shifted to a better place, Ranaguri Hostel, because we had some very good administrators. Dr. John Gunter and John Kidd McCarthy in those days. So they kicked me out for the rubbish former Adonka High Commissioner. I ended up in a better hostel, a new one, around a Guru Hostel. Another evening I was taken to the Connie Club by an Englishman by the name of Bill Onslow. We were asked to leave. Even though he did not tell me, I knew the, re the real reason. I made an appeal to my boss, John Keith McCarthy, a great Australian, the director of Native Affairs. After the club refused to have me as a member, McCarthy and several others resigned the membership in protest. So you can see, that incident in the late 1960s showed already <coughs> that times were changing. Many Australians supported Papua New Guinea's having a more equal place in their own country, even at that time. 
Despite, despite this incident, my brief life as a public sermon was happy. I was taught the basic accounting system of the cooperative movement. All the Australians I worked with became great friends. We went on patrols all over the country from the Highlands to Sipic River. After a while, I returned once again to Rabaul to help my father in the family shipping business. One of the people I came to know was a former Australian World War II coast watcher and plantation owner called Ray Lacey from Annie Island. It was Ray's idea, supported by local chief, that I should stand for the House of Assembly as an elected member. I was successful. My first election victory was in 1968 for the seat of Namatanai. It was during this period that the question about the political future of Papua New Guinea became more pressing, both from inside and outside the country. Whitlam's decision for self-government in December 1973 to be followed by full independence was not widely popular. Many people thought we were not ready. This is still being debated today. Probably every time we feel injured, we blame him. <laughs> when I became the Minister for Internal Finance, Doctor, you know what I'm talking about, I was told by the Administrator Les Johnson that we needed to move, move on, building a stronger economic base. Then the hard road to establish a central bank, a banking system and a new currency. That's what he said, you have a long way to catch up. We've got to move. Johnson told me, and Charles, you would know at that time, it should be very, very young in your memory. I was expected, me, who never studied economics, I was expected to create all these things within a very short time frame to catch up with the popular push for freedom. Ready or not, change was coming. I was fortunate enough to have good people around me and that one of them is Roscano and Henry Robert, Frank Crean, and Andrew Peacock also gave me a great deal of advice and support. Fraser and Peacock crossed sword with Philip, with Treasurer Philip Lynch to secure our first independent budget for Papua New Guinea, in which our High Commissioner is very is a memorable occasion because he took Prime Grand Chief Somari down here and I presented Somari with a five-page after our confrontation with Andrew Peacock in Melbourne. I don't want to say where we confronted each other. <laughs> and as soon as they met up with Fraser and Peacock, they outgunned Philip Lynch. And I heard the cock of the wine bottle broken, and Charles framed me up. We are celebrating the victory now. So you are part of the, of the making of our country, Charles. We went into independence with confidence, as we knew Australia would not abandon us. It's important to understand that many of us did not really know what independence would mean for Papua New Guinea. We were just prepared to work hard and do our best. Writing this memoir has been an opportunity to think about the long-standing relationship between our two countries, which are bound together by geography and history. Many of my closest friends have been Australians. I think of the late Sir Kenneth Bruce Tresize and Warren Dutton, who dedicated their lives to the service of the people in Papua New Guinea. I cannot imagine a more trusted or treasured friend. 
my understanding of Australians, their values, and the way they think began on the sporting field of Queensland during my formative years. I was privileged to have such an opportunity to see firsthand what mateship was all about. There are still today many Papua New Guineans who have the chance to study and work here to open their minds to the way Australians think and behave and believe. There is a significant Australian aid program an ongoing commitment to improving the lives of our people. But there needs to be more opportunities in order to capitalize on our long-term relationship for the benefit of all. After reflecting for some time, I've come to the conclusion that our friendship has suffered somewhat in recent years. One issue is the difficulty that Papua New Guineans face when trying to come to Australia, even for a brief visit. We are not afforded any kind of privileges that many post-colonial nations enjoy with their former masters. There has also been a significant shift in the years since independence in the number and caliber of Australians who really know and understood Papua New Guinea. There is still a great deal of misunderstanding in the Australian media about who we are. Sadly, it is mostly negative news. The Australians who understand us best know that our nation and its cultures are complex. They recognize that 40 years is a very short period of time to create a modern state. As I move into another year as governor, of New Ireland, I can see all the problems that need addressing in my own electorate. There are issues of land ownership and the exploitation of our natural resources. There is still an engine need for health, education and training. We have an ambition, ambitious program of total elimination of malaria in New Ireland. Some very important people were committed are here and the organizations like the Australian Doctors International and Malaria Alliances are with us this evening. Thank you. There is also an upcoming referendum on Bougainville, which will have a significant impact on the future and unity of our nation. If Bougainville does become independent, then I think other island provinces will surely want to follow, including New Ireland, and I would support them. Only responsible, good and fair governments will hold us together. These are issues of enormous significance, not only to Papua New Guinea, but also to Australia and our region. There are some people who say Australians do not understand Papua New Guinea or are indifferent to us, their closest neighbours. Ethnic differences exist the world over. Even as I speak, millions of asylum seekers are swamping different European countries, even democratic campaigns in all democracies, like the United States, are disturbed by protesters. Problems like these are common worldwide. They are created by men and must be solved by men. I have confidence that when leaders follow laws and rules they themselves make, then playing the game might help to bridge the gap. Thank you very much for coming. You. you have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.
www.australianaid.com.au To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.